The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to America's Web Radio. This is uh, Ron Bachman, and you're on Healthcare Insight. We want to talk about the healthcare of this country domestically, foreign policy, domestic policy, taxes, social policies, all those different areas is what this program is all about. And clearly this week, if you've been watching the news at all, if you haven't been a hermit up someplace up on some mountaintop or out on vacation sitting on the beach not listening to any news, you know that the Russian-Ukraine uh, conflict is about to occur, may occur, is likely to occur. We really don't know, but there are Russians and troops that are uh, on the border. They've been building up on the Ukrainian border. It's complicated because there are a couple of separatist um, provinces, if you will, uh, areas outside of Ukraine that Ukraine claims is theirs, but th- they would like to be separate countries and Russia uh, wants to uh, claim them, has said they are separate states, and so they can uh, deal with those states without saying they're inv- invading uh, Ukraine. But what most people don't know, and what I want to get into today, is to share with you a rather shocking discovery that I made just by looking up some of the history of Ukraine and the Russia relationships to see how strong they are. Uh, you almost, from the news reports out there, think that uh, Ukraine has a lot of Russians in it. It used to be part of the Soviet uh, empire. And so it's only natural that uh, Putin, who wants to rebuild the Soviet empire, would just say, well, those are my people, so I want to bring them back in. But I want to talk today about a surprising development that I've come across Because most of us, when we think about history, other than history teachers, we all don't really know or study a lot of history. But I want to take you back to a very important period of time before we get into the Ukraine-Russia activity that's going on today. And look at what was happening between Ukraine and Russia in 1932 to 1933. Because there's something there called the Holodorm. Holodormer. And the Holodormer is a period of time that has a name. It was also called the Terror Famine or the Great Famine. And it was a famine in the Soviet Ukraine at the time that killed millions, some say four million to seven million people, uh, Ukrainians. And it was a large part of a wider Soviet famine that was going on. But there was a special emphasis being put on the way the Russians wanted the Ukrainians to starve. They actually went in and they first cut off the grain supply by taking it out. They put quotas on each of the communities, each of the cities there, to take out as much grain as they possibly could, leaving a bare minimum of for subsistence of the Ukrainians. They thought they would sort of starve out the Ukrainians who had been anti-Soviet. But the reality is that the ingenuity of the Ukrainians was such that they weren't being starved out. In fact, Ukraine has typically been called in the past the breadbasket of Europe. And so it's a very fertile country with a lot of produce coming out of it, a lot of wheat and grain. But the Soviets weren't able to 
cut off that supply by taking out with heavy quotas the people lived on the little subsistence uh, grain that was left. But then, during this 1932-1933 period, the Russians actively went in and took out any remaining grain, any potatoes, any kind of vegetables, any fruits. Everything was taken out of the Ukraine area to literally starve the people into total and complete submission. And actually, it was genocide. So that's the backdrop. The Ukrainians don't have anything in common with the Russians, given the history of starving and killing the Ukrainian people. Many families today in Ukraine experience this. They may have been the very few that came through. Many Ukrainians left the country. So there is a bitter, bitter fight between Ukrainians and Russia. So unlike the current the current media, the kind of papers over all this, it's a forgotten part of the history and nobody's bringing it forward to say there is a natural dislike of one culture to the other culture, of one people to the other people because of that history. And many people who fled Ukraine are now trying to raise awareness of this holodomor. So I want to talk to a real expert, a, um, a Valentina uh, Crodia, from that period of country. She's now living in Canada because she was one of the few survivors, I guess, out of that whole process. So I'd like to talk to her today on this podcast and have her give you some of the detailed backgrounds of this conflict period and how it affects even today's uh, potential conflict of Russia going into Ukraine. So let me ask uh, Valentina. What is this? Can you tell us a little bit more detail about this holodormor? Well, it comes from two Ukrainian words. Uh, The first word is holod, the first part of it, and that means famine or starvation in Ukrainian. And the second portion, holodomor, mor, comes from the verb morete, which means to cause or inflict a torturous death. So basically, when you put it together, it means death inflicted by starvation. Some people have said it was murder by starvation, but I think murder is a very gentle thing in the sense that murder, you usually think someone just been killed, and that's it. But something like the whole of the mort, it took three to four months for a person to die a a torturous death. Valentina, this sounds like a horrific event that occurred, a real disaster uh, to the extreme of like Hitler and Nazis killing six million Jews. But we're so U.S. centric and the current generation doesn't really get taught or learn much about history. So could you enlighten this audience on what this Holodormer really is all about and what's the history behind it? It occurred under Soviet rule. When the Soviet Union was uh, set up, Ukraine was reconquered from the um, short period of the Russian Revolution where Ukraine tried to set up its independent state. It was reconquered by the Red Army, and it became part of the Soviet Union in 1922. By 1928, uh, Stalin became the supreme ruler or the dictator of the Soviet Union, and at that time he introduced the five-year plan. Okay, so Stalin 
takes over complete control of uh, Russia. Um, this is after Lenin uh, was in charge of the uh, revolution in China or in Russia. And as a consequence, Stalin wanted to put in this five-year plan, so he's going to try to consolidate his power and put in various programs that are going to create a loyalty, a subservience of all these different regions, all these different ethnicities, uh, to make them loyal to him. So tell me what happened uh, with that five-year plan. What did Stalin find out when it came to Ukraine? Uh, what he noticed about Ukraine was that the Ukrainians were quite nationally conscious. They had tried to set up an independent Ukraine, and they were not too keen on communism. And when he brought in uh, two things that he wanted to bring in was industrialization and collectivization. He wanted to make Russia a powerful state so that he could conquer the world. That's what they said at that time. And he wanted, and the only thing he could do it with was to have a cash crop to buy industrial machines. And that meant that the only thing they could sell to the rest of the world was the grain from Ukraine, because Ukraine was the breadbasket of Europe. Okay, Valentina, so I think our audience is starting to see at least, I, I'm getting a sense here of what was going on, that Ukraine's the breadbasket of the of the um, uh, European area, certainly the breadbasket of the Russian territories that Stalin was trying to consolidate and to build on for his worldwide dominance uh, concept that he had in mind. But Ukraine had people who were very independent-minded and really didn't want to be part of the Soviet Union, didn't want to be subjugated by Stalin. So he had to do something that would change that dynamic. So what was the process that he went about in this period, again, of 1932 to 1933 that changed uh, the dynamics and the relationship between Ukraine and Russia? So they de decided to take away all private land, that had been owned by farmers. There had been about 5 million uh, individual farms in Ukraine. And these were to be now put into 25,000 collective farms or kolhospes, as they called them. Many might say that the Ukrainian starvation and the difficulties of getting food was just part of the overall Soviet problem of feeding its people during this period of Stalin's rule. But the reality is that they did more than just have a difficult time eating. Didn't the Soviet Union just absolutely come in and take away the food, not just in um, uh, quotas for people to feed grain back to uh, Moscow, but in fact they sent in troops that confiscated uh, all of the food as much as they possibly could to take it away from the Ukrainians and uh, with the purpose of letting them starve. Is that correct? That's right. Um, Ukrainians were actually targeted. There's no question of it. Some of the laws that were, were um, instituted by the Soviet government were set up specifically for Ukraine. They, had to, they wanted to suppress the population, the largest number of revolts. Of course, uh, you know, the Ukrainian farmer didn't just sit and take it, that they're going to be taking my land away. I'm not going to uh, just sit here and wait for it to happen. There were revolts and hundreds, and uh, they said up to a 1,000 revolts in 1930 alone. You know, so they, some of them were quite small. And uh, 
That sort of thing happened. So obviously Stalin knew that the Ukrainians were not going to take it lying down. Well, Valentina, what you've described is a real horror of the Soviet Union, of the communist regime, of Stalin. It's an indictment on all of them and all of that uh, governing structure of communism that they have no morals, that they will go in and they will starve people to death. They will kill people to achieve their, their ends. Um, this is a very different picture of the relationship between Ukraine and the Soviet Union uh, that we would hear on the nightly news. Um, it's almost as if this history didn't exist, uh, doesn't exist. It's out of people's minds. The media is too dumb to actually look back at the history and find out uh, where these conflicts have originated from and why the Soviet Union wants to come back in. Uh, maybe to get grain. Maybe the Soviet people in today's world are having a hard time uh, struggling. Maybe there's other reasons for Putin to want to do this and upset the uh, uh, world order that we're in today. But in any case, I want to come back and I want to continue this discussion with Valentina Kuroda. Uh, so if you'll hang with this audience, just listen to this um, uh, message, this advertisement, and we will be right back. It's a museum, it's a showroom, it's an experience. The Classic Auto Mall in Morgantown, Pennsylvania is 336,000 square feet of rare custom and specialty automobiles on display and on consignment. From the earliest production cars to modern exotics, Classic Auto Mall is a feast for the eyes and the memories. Stroll through time in any season in this climate-controlled facility that you simply have to see to believe. Admission is free, just remember to bring comfortable shoes. It's a museum, it's a showroom, it's an experience. The Classic Auto Mall in Morgantown, Pennsylvania is 336,000 square feet of rare custom and specialty automobiles on display and on consignment. From the earliest production cars to modern exotics, Classic Auto Mall is a feast for the eyes and the memories. Stroll through time in any season in this climate-controlled facility that you simply have to see to believe. Admission is free, just remember to bring comfortable shoes. Hey folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember folks, I'm not angry, I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the americasbroadcastnetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Healthcare Insight on America's Web Radio. Today we are talking about the relationships, the history between Russia and Ukraine. It is what's in the news. Most Americans don't have that history. I certainly didn't know about it until I started doing some research for this program. And it is absolutely astounding. You know, many historians have added up the number of deaths from the communist uh, run countries because when communists come into power, they typically will kill all of the previous leaders and sometimes many of the early generations of children who were exposed to a different system, the non-communist system, whether that's capitalism, socialism, whatever it was, when it doesn't please the rulers, whether it's Mao who killed some, would estimate 70 million people, whether it's it's uh, Lenin and Stalin who who killed another 20 million, whether it's uh, the dictators in Vietnam or in North Korea or in Venezuela. 
Um, every time the Soviet system comes into play, there is a process that they need to cleanse the population of any dissenters. It happened in Cuba just off our borders. So this is nothing new. And so in order for the communist countries to take hold of power, they need to do this kind of ethnic cleansing in some areas, uh, dissenter cleansing, uh, religious cleansing, whatever it is, uh, they will stop at nothing to gain and control uh, and hold on to power. That's what this is really all about. So here we're talking about what Stalin did to the Ukrainian people. And when he found out that they were going to be resistant, that there were revolts across the country as they knew that Stalin was going to come in and try to take over their, their lands and control their farming activities, um, the uh, uh, the Soviet Union at that time under Stalin decided they were going to have to crack down on these recalcitrant people, these people who were not going to just fall in line. So what did um, what did Stalin do as a result of this kind of an attitude on the Ukrainian farmers in particular? And as a result, he he put up a certain um, restrictions on them. Once they set up the the collective farms. The collective farms had fantastic quotas on them, very high quotas for the number of tons of, uh, of grain they were supposed to provide to the government. And only after the government got its take would the farmers be given some kind of a salary. So, um, Valentina, the key to this whole thing then is that the government sets quotas, and if you don't meet them, you're going to be out of the job, you're going to be fired, you're going to be killed, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be arrested, whatever the punishment's going to be. But the government sets a quota, regardless of what the crop actually um, that occurs during that year, whatever is grown doesn't matter. The, the, the centralized Russian government demand a certain amount of grain be sent to the government. And then whatever might be left over, the people will have to eat or they'll pay them a salary, as you said. But isn't that the key to how you squeeze down a population like uh, Stalin did here, just to take away the people, create collective farms, remove the farmers that have been growing and been the breadbasket of that European area for decades, if not centuries? And what you do is you just put them on farms, you take away the private ownership, and you make demands that are completely unreasonable so that you know that the end result is going to starve them out. Isn't that the real key to how all this works? And that's the key to the whole thing, that they raised the quota in Ukraine four times for that year in 1932-1933. The Ukrainian farmers could not, on the collective farms, um, meet those quotas. First of all, just the very fact that things had changed overnight. I mean, the successful farmers were in concentration camps, so they had been executed. Um, the ones who were left were leaderless. Uh, you know, things had to change. And that was in itself a problem. So they basically decided that in this way, they're going to pacify this, this community, and that would... Um, you know, oppress them, make sure that they fear the Soviet government, and they're not going to be thinking of independence for, for decades. So this was clearly a planned, purposeful starvation of people to subjugate them to 
take away the leadership, to take away any kind of creative um, association that might exist among neighbors. Uh, what else did they do? What 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 other so we can sort of understand the the typical uh, activity that occurs under a communist Soviet Union type system? What uh, this also sounds very familiar with Mao did in China, what many other countries do. So give us a flavor of what they also did next to try to subjugate the people of Ukraine. One of the other things they did was they blacklisted villages. If you didn't meet your quota, they said it was sabotage rather than believing that maybe these people really had nothing left to do. They didn't have any food. For example, even seed grain was taken away, which meant you couldn't even plant the next season's crop if you didn't have that. Okay, so Valentina, what you're describing here is a horrific set of events that's basically run by regulations, bureaucrats under the guise and direction of the Soviet political leadership. Um, But when and how did they then, if that didn't work, uh, did they bring in troops? Did they surround the villages? Did they come in uh, with their their armies in order to uh, subjugate the people? Because that would seem like a logical uh, next step. And then they went in. So when it, when when they decided that the village was uh, was uh, doing committing sabotage against the Soviet government, they surrounded the village with troops, and they wouldn't let anything come in or anyone to leave, which meant it was a certain death sentence. And one third of all the villages in Ukraine were treated like that. So the Soviet Union and Stalin and the communists. The whole Russian Empire as it existed, as Putin wants to sort of reestablish, amazingly enough, um, found various ways to subjugate people, to punish people, to kill people, to put them in collectives if they didn't produce because they didn't have uh, the goods, they didn't have the seeds to even plant. It was purposeful uh, starvation of the people with a process of bureaucratic rules, regulations, and now, as you've described it, uh, more military. Um, Was there another step? Was there another level of of, uh, military involvement in this process to subjugate the Ukrainians? The other thing they did was they sent in brigades, and they took even pumpkins and onions, people dried fruit for the winter. You know, I mean, people could survive without wheat, but they can't survive if there's nothing else to eat. So they took absolutely everything from a lot of the villages, and that's where you had the big concentration of uh, deaths. Well, Valentina, I understand that we're ta- we've been talking about sort of the grain production and the Soviet Union coming in and taking away the grain from the people, but I'm, I'm sure the history, and I, I think if you would enlighten the audience here a little bit more, uh, it wasn't just the grain producers, it was people all across the country in various areas uh, of production, whether it's the north or the south. But give us a little bit more of a flavor of how all this thing transpired and how the Ukrainians in different parts of the country, maybe with different um, occupations, uh, uh, showed a level of resistance that the Russians felt they had to absolutely crush by starvation of the entire country. And the largest amount, the largest number of victims were not in the grain-growing area, which is in the south, but in the forest steppe region, where the lot, a lot of the opposition to Soviet rule had been. 
So the process is pretty clear. They start off with rules and regulations and bureaucracies that that crush the people in terms of being able to deliver on goals and uh, requirements uh, that would starve them out. Then they come in with the military to make it even worse. And then they they personalize it to different parts of the country of where you have the most uh, rebellious people and where you have the food that they're trying to take away from the people. Uh, all this is part of a pattern of Soviet Union uh, crushing people. Where, but it's not just the Soviet Union. It's communism. It's what Castro did. It's what Mao did. It what, it's what uh, every communist country in their takeover uh, tends to do uh, to eliminate the opposition, to eliminate the leadership. So there's got to be another level that you can describe to us, and that is how do you work on the people's psyche after you've destroyed their jobs, destroyed their life, you've killed off many of the leaders? What are some of the things that is typical that we might actually see in the coming weeks here uh, in uh, 2022 uh, as the Soviet Union continues this kind of brutality against other people? They were doing a two-pronged sort of uh, system they brought in. They eliminated the private ownership, and they also tried to eliminate Ukrainian identity and nationalism at the same time. So, Valentina, with all these crushing aspects, and it's well documented how the communists will do this in any country they take over, but this is sort of really egregious. This is completely purposeful of one country against another country as they begin to dominate them. But what what's the issue here when we hear that there were 25,000 deaths a day in Ukraine from this activity that the Russians were using to subjugate, to destroy the people of Ukraine? Is that a crazy number that there were 25,000 deaths a day in Ukraine? And you know that that history doesn't go away. It's from the 1930s, but there are families still existing that have had their loved ones murdered and killed under this Russian dominance that happened. And they certainly don't want that to happen again. So what's the actual numbers as best you can tell us of how horrific uh, this the impact was of the Russian dominance in trying to destroy Ukrainian people. Statistics I got from demographers is up to 28,000 a day, and that would have been in June of 1933. And that is because after the winter, um, you know, there's absolutely nothing left to eat. There's nothing, no matter what you did. They ate bark, they ate weeds, they ate everything that they could get their hands on. There were no birds left. There was nothing left because they tried to do what they could to survive. You know, Valentina, a lot of people will throw out high numbers for sort of the shock value, if you will. But uh, clearly people have been looking at this, some historians, some demographers on the number of deaths. Obviously, a lot of it is lost in history. So many of the international uh, historians have kind of ignored this. But there has been a cadre of people who have looked at and studied uh, this this. Um, horrific event that happened in 1932 to subjugate the people of Ukraine. Can you give us a little bit more flavor on how solid uh, these numbers are so that we can uh, rely on the fact that this is one of the greatest uh, murders in the history of mankind? The numbers themselves are still being thrown about. 
the uh, demographers who deal with a scientific approach to the numbers of people who died, this is, these are excessive deaths. This is not, you know, everybody knows that there's a certain number of people who die each year. But this is excessive deaths over what was expected. Comes up to 4 million in act the actual territory of Ukraine. They can verify that, you know, as best they can with their type of system. Now, some people have said it's much higher. Um, you know, again, there are different ways of, of calculating that. And whether we will ever know the exact number is questionable, too. Well, let's take another quick break, and we'll be right back to find the history and the relationships and the background and the real story behind the conflicts that have been going on for decades and decades between Russia and Ukraine. This is nothing new. It's happened before. It's sort of a back-to-the-future concept of what's actually going on, and we can see the brutality of what the Russians have done in the past. And I think we all understand and accept now that Putin can be just as ruthless as Stalin was to get his way. So stay with us, and we'll be right back for more of this very interesting history of Ukraine. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. If you love classic cars, you're going to want to listen to The Classic Car Show with Tom Cox and Richard Lentinello on America's Web Radio, live every Saturday at 8 a.m. Eastern at americaswebradio.com or on demand on your favorite podcast app. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the americasbroadcastnetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. Today we are talking about the historical relationship between Ukraine and Russia. We know that today, and maybe even by the time you hear this presentation, which is only a day or so ahead of where I'm recording it, uh, you may have Russia already invading Ukraine. This is not something new. The Ukrainian people were subjugated by the Russians in the past. They were part of the Soviet Union, and the belief is that Putin wants to put back together, if you will, the Soviet Union. But when the Soviet Union um, subjugated these different territories, these different countries at the time, they were brutal in what they did to take the assets out of the country. Ukraine apparently is a breadbasket, very fertile uh, country with good farmers. It has good minerals in parts of the country. So there is a um, an economic reason why the Soviet Union would like to um, once again dominate the Ukrainian people. So I want to continue this history lesson of the conflicts that have occurred as recently as the 1930s and how brutal the Soviet Union was in treating the Ukrainian people, starving them to death. It was really another holocaust, if you will. In fact, they call it a holodrome. And the reason is that so many people were purposely starved to death by the Soviets. So I want to go back to um, Valencia and have her tell us a little bit more 
about the deaths that occurred. Um, was it in the millions, and maybe how did it affect children? But it's in the millions. There's no question of it. And one of the things that you should know is that 31% of all the deaths were children under the age of 10. So you're talking about one-third. So even if you're talking about the modest number of 4 million, you're talking about at least a million and a quarter of children who died. Valentina, this is just uh, such an unbelievable story, a chapter in history that is so shameful. Um, tell us more about what happened to the families uh, that lived there and how they survived or didn't survive or how they, uh, the few maybe that made it through here uh, were even able to do that. But tell us about the family uh, difficulties during this um, terrible occupation and imposition of uh, starvation policies uh, by the Russians over the Ukrainian people. His whole families were wiped out. A lot of those, uh, a lot of people were also sent to the gulag, the concentration camps if they opposed, or they ended up uh, in Siberia, for example, or they were executed. Valentina, I understand you're currently living in Canada, so obviously your family uh, was one that either got out or was a survivor. Can you tell us a little bit about your own personal story uh, related to this historic uh, tragedy? Um, I just found out about my family. I, I'm the daughter of two survivors. And my father's family were labeled as kulaks. They were the most prominent uh, family in this small, well, it's a big village just outside the city of Kiev. And none of my cousins know about my grandfather because the family never told them anything. They were, you know, families were afraid to speak about this to their children for fear they're going to go to school and question the teachers in the history class where the whole of the mod was completely forbidden to be spoken of. And so I went to the secret, <laughs> secret service, I guess, of Ukraine these days because I'm working with some historians and they put me in contact with them and they did me a favor. They found my grandfather's... Uh, my grandfather's papers, and in it, I found out he was arrested in 1928, one of the first to be arrested as a kulak in December, and that he didn't own a lot of land, but he did own a store along with some land, and uh, I also found out that he was organizing uh, people against collectivization, and for that, he ended up in prison until 1937, where he died. Well, Gina, I, I know that that... Um must have been very difficult to find out about what your father um, and how he died in, in prison, but maybe some pride that he stood up uh, early on uh, and risked his life and ultimately gave that ultimate sacrifice. But did that give you any sort of um, comfort or closure uh, to know those kinds of details about your own father? It was for me, and I, ha I was the one from outside of Ukraine who sent the information to them. It was all written in Russian. I had it translated, even though I know Russian. I've studied it. You know, uh, but I told them, I said, we have to know this, and we have to know why this happened. Even my own father didn't tell me much about it, you know, about his father's, what happened to him, except that he died in prison. You know, but... They, didn't, they knew even less than I did about the details because they were told it was better that they didn't know, so they never had to be questioned. I know you said that many people really didn't want to talk about it. Uh, they wanted to almost forget it or they were afraid to speak out that they would then be targeted again. But 
Did you hear stories as a youth? And did your parents say anything about so that you you knew and understand about the tragedy that had occurred, even if maybe you didn't know some of the details? Yes, they did. I, I don't think there was a time when I didn't know about the whole of the war. My mother also lived through it. She was an 11-year-old child when it happened. My father was 19, so he was a little older, 1920. You know, so he knew a lot about it. And we, we, um, I was born in a DP camp, a displaced persons camp in Germany, in Mannheim, Germany, after the war. I was born after the, right after the war, 1945. So that most of the people that were in these camps had been people from there. There were lots of Ukrainians because the Germans took them out as Nazi slave laborers, as they did my parents. So my parents had lived through the communists and the Nazis. You know, so they've been traumatized, you might say, with a double whammy. You know, Valentina, the media in the present day, 2022, is talking about um, an outgoing migration of people from Ukraine into Poland, into other countries where they can escape this kind of uh, expected brutality that the Soviet system, the communist system, imposes on people. Um, Your family went through this, as you described. I understand that your family um, immigrated uh, to Canada. Can you tell us about how that process works so we can understand how people who want to leave that kind of uh, brutality can go to another country and have some difficulties in assimilation, but basically wind up uh, creating their own culture in a new country, but also sort of... Uh, participating in that melting pot concept that we talked about in the United States, but I think also is there in Canada. So give us a little bit about your very personal story of, um, of immigrating to Canada. And in Montreal, where we immigrated, uh, we actually, uh, my parents were part of a parish. It was the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of Canada parish that was set up specifically of people who had come from Central and Eastern Ukraine who had lived through this. Because the Ukrainians who have already been in Canada, they didn't understand what these people had lived through, and they couldn't find some common language. So they set up their own church. And I grew up with everybody having a story. I felt my father's trauma. My mother was angry most of the time about this, what had happened to her. My father was very uh, quiet, and he internalized it. And he also spent two and a half years in the concentration camp under Stalin. Because Stalin, when he labeled the family as being kulaks and enemies of the people, it, it transferred on to the rest of the family. So he ended up going to a concentration camp at the age of 21. You know, Valentia, it is such a powerful story, and you have such personal connection to this history that in some ways has been lost to many people, uh, the whole story of the brutality of the Russians, maybe because they were being brutal to their own people and and they had been sort of a closed society. But um, you have a very personal story that is worth telling. How did this affect you as you... Uh, assimilated into the North America, into Canada, and had your own life and career. Tell me about how um, you progressed with this whole notion of your family having suffered in such a horrific way. You know, um, I know it's affected me. I felt I had to know about it, and so I studied history. 
at McGill University, and I went into teaching. And I, when I retired from teaching, I felt I had to do something about getting it into curriculum. And that's what I've been doing for the last 12 years. Well, we've gone from sort of the general um, horrors of what Russia did to Ukrainians to a little bit more specific and um, personal uh, impact that has had. And I think our audience finds will find that um, important to sort of flesh out this a little bit more. Is there a personal story or something that you can relate to our audience that um, uh, you can recall from talking to maybe your grandmother or somebody of that era who, who had to live through all this? Um, can you tell us a little bit uh, about that kind of exposure uh, from a personal family member that um, lived through this? Well, my grandmother, um, I saw my grandmother twice in my life. You know, with uh, growing up as a child of refugees, it meant that we never could communicate with the family. And my mother wrote letters once a decade, and I went to Ukraine for the first time in 68, 1968, and then I went in 77. And I had was given permission to visit them in their village for a couple of hours at a time. And the second time, they let me even sleep over. And I spent the whole night talking to my grandmother. Just to quickly jump in here for our audience, and people who forget about their history at times, uh, when you went to visit your grandmother, this was when Ukraine was still under the Soviet Union, the rule um, of the Soviets. And so that's why you had such limited access. There was not easy travel uh, to countries that were behind the Iron Curtain, as we called it at the time. So um, tell us a little bit more about what she said and the experiences that you're able to glean from those uh, few discussions you had with her. And she told me one story that was um, that really upset me, and this was the fact she was working in a collect on a collective farm in a coal hosp, and she said that to feed her children, uh, there was a distillery in the town, and the distillery to make alcohol needs grain, so they had all kinds of grain under a tar tarp tarps, you know these uh, huge. Uh, huge piles of grain that they were using to ferment for alcohol. And at the end of the day, they had a huge pit outside in the yard where they would throw the chaff into it at the end of it. In other words, the garbage that came out after the liquor is formed. And she said that basically she would go there every day with two pails that she would have on a stick across her shoulders, she would go to pick up this stuff. Some of the people that lined the outside of this pit fell in and drowned, but she would somehow get the stuff out of there, take it home, she would uh, wash it, she would dry it, she would grind it, and whatever little thing they had, they did have a cow that was so ornery that even the communists didn't want to have anything to do with this cow. And so they, she used some of that milk, and then whatever else that she could find, you know, weeds and stuff like that, she would make some form of bread. And that is one of the reasons why they were kept alive. Well, thank you for your story. It is so detailed. It gives us the overview of the history of the country, of the Ukrainian conflicts with Russians, and also a very personal impact of what happens to these tragedies. They're not just numbers on a page or, or numbers in some history book. 
um, but they're actual human stories of substance of importance to really understand the horrors that people have to go through with repressive regimes coming in and invading their country, which we are about to see uh, in 2022. So stay with us, audience. We want to wrap up this uh, discussion on Ukraine and Russia, a little bit of the history, a little bit of the impact of the people. So we'll be right back for the final session. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. When it comes to car magazines, are you tired of reading about mega-dollar collector cars you can't afford, or endless reporting on auctions and how-to tech stories that don't interest you? Then Crankshaft is the car magazine for you. Crankshaft is a 144-page softcover quarterly filled with all sorts of fascinating stories, the type of car features you won't find anywhere else. It features American and foreign cars, pre- and post-war era cars of distinction including sports cars, muscle cars, and regular family sedans too. To discover what many car enthusiasts are saying is the best car magazine ever published, you can purchase either a single copy for $12.95 plus $3 postage, or a one-year subscription, four issues, for $59.95. To order your copy, go to www.crankshaftmagazine.com. That's www.crankshaftmagazine.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. Today we have been talking about the historical conflicts and problems between Ukraine and Russia. It's in the news today. It's in the news now. Looks like Russia is going to invade um, Ukraine or at least capture uh, the separatist states that are associated with Ukraine that I guess for some reason or other uh, have been trying to establish their own countries. But Russia now is saying they're their own country and I think will uh, enter into those areas as of today. It looks like there is some shelling going on. But just to give a quick summary of sort of the current state where we are, I want you to listen to this uh, German broadcast, news broadcast, on what the current state is, because Germany is such an important part. It is right near this area, and it's one of the most powerful countries in Europe that will be affected by any kind of major conflict that breaks out between Russia and Ukraine. So here's a snippet of the uh, current broadcast that's being uh, shown in Germany. Well, Russia's escalation of the crisis over Ukraine has brought a flood of condemnation from Western leaders. President Putin's decision to recognize two breakaway regions of eastern Ukraine as independent states has also prompted punitive sanctions. The toughest at this stage is likely to be Germany's decision to hold the key and Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline project. This has been built to bring Russian gas to Europe, but still needs the go-ahead from German regulators, which Chancellor Scholz now says has been suspended indefinitely. The halting of the pipeline remains the most significant step taken in response to Russia's latest escalation. Let's hear from one of the chief editors of this uh, uh, German broadcast on her take on what's happened with the Nord Stream pipeline. I guess the uh, chancellor finally decided to do something and actually mentioned the words Nord Stream pipeline, which hadn't been uh, on the table before. At least it was being held off while he was meeting uh, with Putin in Moscow. 
Absolutely. He's pulled the plug on it. He will smother that project in German bureaucracy, which is a sure way to keep it from going online for a pretty long time. He's making it subject to a new um, energy strategic analysis. So that will take some time. And clearly, he also said that what just happened will play a huge role in that. Translated, that means Russia clearly is not to be trusted. And what does that mean in European and German energy security? He so tried to avoid saying Nord Stream 2. Even when he was standing next to Joe Biden, the U.S. president, he wouldn't say it outright, even when Biden said he would ensure that this project does not go ahead if Russia crosses that border. And that's because not mentioning it was his entry ticket into talks. He went to Moscow last week. I was able to go with him on that trip. Um, There, he also was still trying to avoid going too deep in the issue of Nord Stream 2, which is so important for Russia, and now to no avail. He's pulled the plug on it for now, for sure. So is cutting off the uh, Nord Stream 2 pipeline going to hurt the German people directly because you were expecting a certain amount of... um of oil or gas uh, through that pipeline? Actually, the full capacity of Nord Stream 2, that first pipeline uh, that is connecting Russia directly with Germany, it's not actually on full throttle um, um, capacity. Um, the real issue is that the storage here in Germany and Europe was low and that Russia is only delivering by the book. It is not delivering anything. It doesn't absolutely have to by contract. And um, this is really the big question, whether Europe can afford to spend a winter without more Russian gas. Will Russia now stick to its contracts? Um, but we've heard from Brussels that the EU for now is confident that, yes, it can. But we're also already hearing there are big fears and consumers will feel this in Europe that energy prices will go through the roof. Well, for those listeners who have been with us this whole hour, it sounds like a very uh, typical strategy of communists. In the uh, 30s, they they uh, starved Ukraine by uh, taking out the wheat and then sending in soldiers and depleting the uh, food supplies that existed then. Uh, the modern-day version that may very well be to try to uh, squeeze the Europeans as an entire country uh, of its oil supply, of its natural gas, of the energy that it needs to be able to heat homes and to run vehicles and to have delivery trucks. And every product that's made in Europe probably has some aspect of of oil in it, of, of uh, the energy production of the goods as well. So this is a tactic that we've seen. That's why I wanted to have this program that started off with some of the history and the the techniques that the communists use to try to uh, defeat another country, to demoralize them, to bring them to their knees. Uh, In the 30s, it was about food, and today it's about uh, the power of uh, energy that can have an impact. So um, I want to go back to the um, editor on the uh, German telecast and ask the question, has any of these the diplomatic uh, means as any of the idea that, okay, they're going to live up to the contract uh, for what they've already uh, promised. Has any of this actually worked to change the attitudes or the opinions of the Russians as we begin to impose uh, some level of sanctions? didn't stop what um, certainly Washington is now calling an outright invasion. 
The U.S. is now using that term. Um, the big question is, can it still be contained in some shape or form? And how hard are these sanctions going to be that are now drawn up? There seems to be a sense, I was at the Munich Security Conference this weekend, the Americans were all already going a step further. There are also quite a few uh, members of Congress, uh, particularly from the Republics, uh, Republicans, who'd called for sanctions, preemptive sanctions, uh, to avoid uh, Vladimir Putin even taking it this far. So I think there will be a lot of soul-searching done whether sanctions shouldn't have started earlier. They are arriving now. They did not... Um, deliver in the sense of avoiding a full-on escalation. And the big question now is how much longer Kiev will hold out not giving Russia a pretext for open fighting. Well, given the history of the Russian-Ukrainian conflicts that have occurred and what Russia has done just taking over and subverting the people of Ukraine and also the history and attitudes of Putin wanting to expand his Russian Empire and try to rebuild the uh, Soviet Union Empire, wasn't this all kind of predictable in some sense? Well, it was kind of predictable that when the EU, when the US say they stand side by side with Ukraine, and this is also something the Ukrainian president Zelensky criticized at the Munich Security Conference, its words, its economic support, some are delivering weapons, some NATO countries, but what he said he really needed were security guarantees, ideally a timeline to join NATO. Um, but he really wanted more and he knew he was not going to get that. So when it comes down to it, He's pretty much on his own, although we're already hearing talk of Britain, for instance, delivering more weapons. They call them defensive weapons, but in the end, um, you can have a legal argument. Where's the difference? So migrants from Ukraine are already on the move. They're already moving across into Poland uh, for the safety and security of being in a NATO country and trying to protect their family. Of course, there's going to be a lot of people stay back are going to fight, as is the nature of the Ukrainian people. They don't give up easily. But many families with young children, with disabled or other health care problems or issues, are moving into Poland. So I'd like to hear from a Polish observer and the Polish uh, local news there what's happening with the current migration uh, that's going on with just the Russian threats, let alone that we now are seeing and hearing about some bombings. But what's happening with the migration into Poland? And over a million now live in Poland. Many fled to their western neighbor after war broke out in Donbass, and so far they've been welcome as mostly low-wage workers. The new wave of migrants has led to mixed reactions, especially due to their history of conflict. So how are the people of Poland actually accepting these refugees? Uh, people who are fleeing war to come into their country. Um, let's listen to some sort of man-on-the-street interviews, and you'll hear some Polish background with the um, uh, the announcer uh, speaking in English what it is that they're saying. Let's listen to some of the actual comments from ordinary people in Poland about the situation of migrants coming into their country uh, for safety. They killed us before. I have no love for them. But if they need help, we have to help them. 
Everyone's afraid of this war because we don't know what impact it will have. It could lead to an influx of migrants to Poland and other countries. I wouldn't offer them a room, but I'd give them some food. I live alone, so I'd be afraid. I often go to the Ukrainian dentist because his prices are good and I've never been disappointed. But I can't say today whether I'll help them. Irina Gavrilyaka hopes there won't be war or a wave of refugees. She views her own trip to Poland as a type of life insurance. Well, Europe is on the precipice of a war. Now, how engaged Europe wants to be in this war or whether Ukraine has to go it alone is yet to be seen. The United States has said they they stand by Ukraine, but it is not part of the protective umbrella of uh, NATO. And so there's not much we can do except uh, send some support, some weapons, some food, and be outraged and try to create a diplomatic solution, but it doesn't look like uh, Putin has any interest in that. So is it true then? Uh, Let's talk to a European Union uh, member uh, on the council and see if he thinks that this is something that the Europeans are not willing to go to war with Russia over Ukraine. Is that true? Uh, We are not prepared to go to war with Russia to defend Ukraine. And that's why Ukraine uh, may have to be fighting alone. So the reality is the United States is not going to send in troops. We're not going to go to Russia, war with Russia over Ukraine. Um, And the European Union is not going to go to war with Russia over Ukraine. So you basically have this bully, uh, Vladimir Putin, who can uh, do whatever he wants and doesn't look like he's going to have anybody who can actually stand up to him and tell him no. Um, let's listen to the uh, the head of Ukraine and what his thoughts are about the prospects of fighting alone. We expect clear and effective support from our partners. We'll now look closely to see who our true friends and partners are and who will continue to try and scare off the Russian Federation with mere words. Now let's wrap up this week's session on Ukraine and Russia and the conflicts in Europe with a reporter on the ground in the... Um, a uh, war-torn country, the part of it that is already under attack uh, from Russians, that they're sending in troops, they're sending in uh, vehicles, they're sending in tanks. Uh, we're going to see whether they will cross the line of these separatist uh, con- pieces of Ukraine and go after the whole of Ukraine. But let's listen to the on-site uh, analysis by a reporter right there in Ukraine. In uh, bomb shelters hiding some now thinking about whether it's time to leave that frontline zone and move a bit further away from those front lines. But obviously the biggest fear that uh, we'll see Russia not only sending its troops to those rebel-held areas, uh, the thing that began yesterday night, but also that we would see them crossing the front line uh, because those separatist areas claim basically the entirety of the Donetsk and Luhansk regions, most of which are under government control, under Kiev's control. And if they you know, make good on that promise, that would obviously see huge amounts of fighting and lots of people, lots of civilians involved in what are very densely populated areas. So there you have it, audience. The history of Ukraine and Russia, the um, horrible brutality of the communist system on the Kiev people, and it's happening again. Understand what's going on. 
and make a decision as to whether this is worth fighting for or not, as the most the people that ought to be involved are those in the European Union. If they're not willing to fight, then, in my opinion, the United States uh, shouldn't take this on alone. Join us next week for another version of Healthcare Insight and what's going on nationally, internationally, uh, and domestically. Uh, See you next week. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.